In this podcast episode, we want to introduce you to our BCEN friend, Sam Kionis. Michael Dexter and Mark Eggers talk with Sam about two of his books, Dreamland, The Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, and The Least of Us, True Tales of America, and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Come spend some time with us as we listen to Sam tell about these books and some of the stories within the pages. Sam also shares some of his history of being a writer and his love for crime reporting. This episode is called Hope During America's Opiate Epidemic. Hello, and welcome to BCN and Friends podcast, where we hold interesting conversations about learning with a range of thought leaders, BCN certification holders, and industry professionals. Most importantly, create value and insight for you, our professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. We hope you find our discussions interesting, informative, sometimes funny, sometimes serious, but always valuable. I'm Mark Eggers, Manager of Education and Technology Services at BCN, and one of your hosts for today. I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Dexter, Director of Professional Development at BCN. Hi, Michael. Hey, Mark. Great to be with you today. Thanks. In this episode of BCN and Friends, we have our friend Sam Kionis. Michael, could you please tell us about our BCN and friend, Sam? Yeah, I would be happy to. Actually, uh, it's kind of an interesting story. I was at an airport and I came across an article while I was just waiting on my flight. Um, from, and it was an excerpt from a book that um, uh, Sam has written. And it was just so interesting to me. And I saw so many parallels to the changes going across America with opioid epidemic and things that emergency nurses have to deal with every day. And I thought, just go out on a limb and um, reach out to him and see if he would be willing to come on a podcast and talk about this book because it's just so fascinating to me. So I reached out to him and here we are today. So I'm really happy um, to introduce uh, Sam Quinones. He is a Los Angeles-based freelance journalist, reporter for 35 years, author of four acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction. He's a veteran reporter on immigration, gangs, drug trafficking, and the border. He's formerly a reporter with the LA Times, where he worked for 10 years. Before that, he made a living as a freelance writer, residing in Mexico for a decade. In 2015, Sam Quiones authored Dreamland, the true tale of America's opioid epidemic. This ignited an awareness of the epidemic that has cost the United States hundreds of thousands of lives and become deadliest drug scourge in the nation's history. Dreamland won a National Book Critics Circle Award for Best Nonfiction Book of 2015, has been selected as one of the top books of 2015 by Amazon, Daily Beast, BuzzFeed, Boston Globe, Entertainment Weekly, The Wall Street Journal, and many other organizations. His latest book released in November 2021 is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. In The Least of Us, Kionez chronicles the emergence of a drug trafficking world producing massive supplies of dope, cheaper and deadlier than ever, marketing to the population of addicts created by the nation's opioid epidemic as the backdrop to tales of Americans' quiet attempts to recover community through simple acts of helping the vulnerable. Sam, I want to welcome you to the BCN and Friends podcast. It's a pleasure to have you today, and I'm looking forward to discussing this with you. Well, thanks for, to you both for having me, and hello to all the emergency room nurses out there in the, in the world. It's a, uh, a job that is extraordinarily difficult, and um, again, with a lot of challenges presented by a lot of the stuff in the, that I wrote about in the book, that's for sure. Yeah, so thank, thank you again, and um, 
we wanted to delve into some of that. But before we do, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? And I know we've talked about your career, but maybe a little about your career as well. Yeah, I've been a reporter 35 years. I started, uh, um, you know, a long time ago at the uh, Orange County Register. I then had a uh, moved on from there to a, a, uh, the town of Stockton to cover crime. And that really changed my life. I think I became as ever since then, I really thought of myself as a crime reporter. Uh, there was a, a lot of crime then. It was a crack epidemic and gangs and drugs and all that kind of stuff. And then um, uh, kind of fast forward, I moved down to, went down to Mexico really to study Spanish at first and then found a job down there working for an English language publication. And, and then that publication folded and I became a freelance writer. And that's why I stayed in Mexico. Um, I'd always wanted to be a freelance or a foreign correspondent. And that allowed me to do it without having to having to go through a you know network of uh, a, 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 a bureaucracy of a newspaper. Uh, much better idea. And I wrote two books about Mexico. Spent a lot of time traveling all over the country. There's only three, four or five states I think that I haven't visited in the country of Mexico. And I came back to work for the LA Times, as you said, and t uh, for uh, from uh, 2004 on and uh middle of that i was put on a, a team of reporters to cover the emerging drug war down in mexico between the cartels and then the military got involved too and so it's just nasty stuff that's been going on for a long time now and it was the, doing that that i began to write about the emergence of heroin as a new market uh before i thought heroin was you know it was like old and done with right from the 1970s who would mess with it ever again you know well, um, so sure enough, they began to do that and, and, and began to see this real increase in heroin. And because, and that then, I, I began to investigate that and I began to realize as I did that, that the reason for that in new market for heroin in the United States was because of the um, opioid revolution in pain management in American medicine. I, I knew nothing about at all. I knew not, I didn't know what an Oxycontin was, or I didn't know anything about addiction, pain management, pain is the fifth vital sign, none of that kind of stuff that I know, press gainy scores, none of that. So all of that was my really big, big uh, learning curve. But that's really kind of what got me into the topic of the addiction epidemic in America today is really kind of trying to understand the heroin market. And because of that, after that, I kind of backed into it, you know, backed into the, the story and then began to realize, oh, there's this much bigger thing going on. So that's really kind of what brings us up to the present. Wow. Well, you you certainly know a lot, even uh, mentioning pain is the fifth vital sign and the press gainy scores and things. You know, in the emergency department, we we have to balance sometimes the, the need for pain medication with the potential for opioid addiction. And um, yeah. there's just so many complexities that I think most of the public doesn't even understand with that. And, but with that in mind, you know, you recently wrote the book, The Least of Us, and I have been reading that book. I'm actually almost finished with it. It's a fascinating, fascinating story that interweaves the epidemic with the way that people have responded to that, both positively and, and negatively. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and maybe just an overview of what that book entails, what your passion was behind writing this book? It grew really from my first book, Dreamland, which was about the opioid epidemic, which is about the wanton, in my opinion, prescribing of, of, of pain pills for almost any affliction. And then a subset of people getting addicted to that. And then a subset of those folks switching to, to heroin and igniting interest again from the Mexican drug world 
in heroin before it really was not a big deal for for the mexican trafficking world before that so that i finished that book in 2014 published in 15. i but i'd always wanted to expand i just didn't have room for it in dreamland the idea that what was it what we had created this problem this opioid addiction epidemic at the root of it was our own destruction of community our own shredding of community in millions of ways jobs going overseas civic you know municipal planning that that doesn't put any sidewalks in and everybody has to drive three miles for a loaf of bread that kind of thing there's all manner of ways in which we have done that um in this country and the idea also this whole epidemic is rooted in the idea that we could have easy answers to complicated problems and in this case the complicated problem was how do we deal with pain and then the idea was well we can eradicate pain with one magical pill you know kind of pill for every human being, no matter the background. And that's where we got into enormous, enormous trouble as a country with all kinds of unintended consequences that came with, with that. So that was what I wanted to do was initially was write a book about people responding by this in the smallest, least sexy, least noticed ways of um, by um, uh, uh, repairing community. And so I began to look for those stories early on. That was what, kind of the first thing that began this book. And I began to find these stories like uh, in Kenton County, Kentucky, where they're trying to uh, rethink jail. I think it's a very, very important thing they have to do there. Uh, we all have to do that. I think that's part of it should be every county's job now is to rethink how you do jail, make, make part of jail be about recovery. It's a strange idea for a lot of people, but certainly it's possible. You can see it in, in there's jails all over the country doing this now. Stories of, uh, you know, uh, this guy named Bird who lived in Muncie, Indiana, who who tried to who who worked at a community center in southern uh, South Muncie that they were going to close uh, amidst the, the, the real estate bubble bursting and the budgets drying up and all that kind of stuff. And they do close it. And then he keeps the key and he keeps it open. And so he becomes kind of a community center unto himself for people that the kids come to play basketball at the center that the city really thought it had closed. It was should have, it was officially closed, but here he is opening it for all this stuff. You know, it was those kinds of stories, small stories about community repair that I began with and continue and it really became the heart and soul of the book and really the the least of us is the title of the book the least of us is um grows from that idea that we're you know only as strong as the most vulnerable in the community we're only as strong as the least of us then though as i began to do that i began to realize that the drug story was also changing in very very menacing ways and so you had the emergence of synthetic drugs down in mexico um, really the solidification of synthetic drugs is the way to go in Mexico. So the drugs that you do, do not need a plant to make, you, you just make them from chemicals only. And the, the two main ones, of course, are fentanyl and methamphetamine. Fentanyl, of course, a wonderful anesthetic when used properly. I've had it myself in anesthesia as an, as an anesthetic and meth, methamphetamine. And both are now illicitly, you know, uh, uh, all across the country. There, there, there's a, it's an unprecedented event uh, that the Mexican trafficking world, one generalized source, has been able to cover our entire country with, with not one but two drugs. And that's only possible, only possible because it's synthetics. You can make these drugs according to how many chemicals you have, and they can get chemicals on world markets through the ports on the Pacific coast of, of Mexico very easily. And you, there's no seasons 
you can make it all year round, you know. And so all of this kind of combined into these two stories, stories of a very menacing story of the drugs situation, which is very scary. And on the other hand, quietly, though, people working towards in the small, most local, most neighborhood kind of way towards repairing uh, a community, not imagining that there's any magic bullet, silver bullet answer to this to this problem. And that's what I wanted to highlight more than anything. And that really, as I said, it's kind of the heart and soul of the book. Yeah. And I think you you highlight I wanted to talk about the drug portion a little bit as well. But, you know, I, I think you highlighted that part extremely well. I, one story Thank that you. really stuck out to me was uh, a lady that I believe had retired already. She used some of her husband's retirement money to purchase equipment to remove tattoos. Yes. And uh, from a, just a, a basic thought process, you go, it's tattoo removal. It's not that big of a deal. But then when you start reading some of the tattoos, what they said or what they represented and how that was so liberating to some of these people just to have a tattoo removed, um, even those little things go so far for people. And I think, again, I think you just did an excellent job of it's not just an interesting book about drugs, but it's a, a book that also talks about the response whether how yes. small or how great the, that response is and how meaningful and impactful that is to so many people. Yeah, no, I think that was really the point. Jill Martin, uh, a wonderful woman, I met her in, in Covington, uh, Kentucky, and uh, wonderful lady. She, um, that's exactly, she was a retiree from, from corporate America and her husband died and left this money. And she had been, she began, you know, a, a tutoring at the jail began to understand that everybody she was tutoring had tattoos and those tattoos were impediments to any kind of reintegration into into civic life getting an apartment a job being around other people who didn't look view you as a kind of a menace that kind of thing and so yeah it's it's, it's a remarkable story I love that's the kind of story i wanted to tell throughout the book and i as again as, as i said it's like more than half the book is about those kinds of of stories of, of people in the smallest ways just doing that kind of thing, not to say that this is what every county needs to do, although I, I think every county would benefit from someone who removed tattoos from people's faces and arms and necks and so on. But merely to say that this is the approach, maybe this is the attitude, like we need to understand that that we don't get into, we don't solve a lot of the stuff without people kind of moving into finding the, the solutions to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Smallest way. I have administered a lot of fentanyl. I worked in a procedural area for a while and, and administered yes. quite a bit of it. When I think of fentanyl, I think of a small vial or a small ampule of medication and you pull up a little a small dosage and you give it in very small increments. You present fentanyl in a very, very different way, of course, a, not a approved pharmacy way. Um, but as, as you're presenting fentanyl and those considerations, as you said, with the synthetic growth of fentanyl, it, I, as an emergency nurse and as those listening on the podcast, they think of it, you know, from the ampule or the vial method. Yeah. How do you see this synthetic fentanyl impacting first responders, police officers, nurses in that indirect way that we're not used to? Well, uh, fentanyl, as everybody probably knows who's listening here, um, is extraordinarily potent. It is, um, it is ex for, th for that reason, extraordinarily profitable on the street as a substitute for, for, for heroin. It happens to be a magnificent drug if you are a drug dealer and a total curse if you are a uh, user. 
because the, the key to fentanyl, the reason it became such a revolutionary surgical drug in anesthesia is because it took you in and out of anesthesia very quickly. And when you're out, you're coherent. I had fentanyl when I had a heart attack five years ago, and I was in and out of, I was nodding in and out, but I would come, I would actually literally watch them on the video operating on me, you know, that kind of thing. And then when it was done, boom, I was gone and fentanyl was, you know, the, 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 uh, the, they, it was Narcan out of me, or I'm not sure how they got rid of, but I was lucid. The problem is with dealers and so on, uh, uh, selling it, users then now need to use fentanyl far, far more than they ever used it before. Uh, than they ever used heroin before. You'd use heroin twice a day to stay, keep the dope sickness away. Well, now you're using fentanyl four or five times a day, and every time is a is a is a threat because it's also poorly mixed, and that is the difference right there. I think that the fentanyl to answer your question the fentanyl on the street is in a powder form it looks very much as white like cocaine or whatever like meth or whatever and it cannot be sold in the potency retail cannot be retailed in the potency that would um that would make someone high because it's just so small it's a few, equivalent of a few grains of salt and a couple more grains will kill you so in order to sell it, people have to mix it with inert powders, lactose or whatever, a lot of different powders that they use. That means that, that you have to be relying on people who don't have a clue what they're doing, don't really care what they're doing, maybe high themselves, maybe totally motivated by money to mix this concoction well. And they, they that's not what's happening. It's it's the, the, the using fentanyl, even a pharmaceutical form of fentanyl on the street would be dangerous, but this makes it extraordinarily uh, deadly. So that is really the form, answer your question, that's really the form it comes in. It also now is coming in the last five years, has been coming down in Mexico, they have taken to counterfeiting pain, uh, uh, pharmaceutical drugs, pain pills like uh, Percocets, Adderalls, uh, Xanax bars, Oxycodone 30, millig 30 milligram generics, um, all of those are being made down in Mexico with only with fentanyl in them. There's nothing else in those drugs. No oxycodone, no hydrocodone, no, 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 that's it. no benzodiazepine. So all of that is it. So it look, but it, they do a very good job of printing it. They look very, very much like the, the, the legitimate drug. So this is another form in which people are, 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 are fine. And all, but all of this has to do with, again, the idea, this is a supply story. They have the ability to make stunning quantities of this stuff. And so now the question is, how do we sell it? We have more than we, we can, we can, how do we sell it? in what form? So now pills, or you find at the local dealer level, which you'll often find in Cal in, in across the United States now is um, dealers adding fentanyl to other drugs. Um, cocaine being a principal one, you may have just seen a couple of weeks ago, the West Point cadets who overdosed in in uh, in, uh, in Florida on, went on spring break, um, and then two more overdosed when they tried to give CPR to the other their friends who had fallen out. Um, all of that is happening because fentanyl is so prevalent; it's just so common and it's so easy to find and all that. And so that is really the story, in my opinion. I believe that is what's what's going on in America today. You have the production supply that is uh, the capacity just outstrips anything because they can make it all year round with chemicals 
not grow it according to the seasons like marijuana or poppies or whatever. And so that means that those ampules, I, mean, I don't know, maybe there's some times they're sold on the street in those little ampules you're referring to. I think mostly it's sold like, like powder. It, it comes in a variety of, of forms now. Yeah. And I think, you know, with the, with the thought of the ampule or the vial, or, or even if I was to take a potassium pill that's, that's equal to 20 millicues and cut it in half, as a healthcare worker, you're just used to, if I don't drop the full amount, it's going to equal this. A half of a, of a 20 equals 10. A half of a fentanyl dose equals uh, 50, yeah. 100. But on the street, you don't, I mean, they don't know. If, if they think, oh, I'm going to take They have no idea. Pill. They have no idea what they're <laughs> doing. That's, that's why I put in, this, in the book the chapter about the magic bullet blender. Early yeah. on, when chem, chem, the fentanyl was coming from China in, in, in like packages of a pound or so at a time uh, through the mail, to, to local folks in the United States, not going through Mexico so much, um, the, the local dealers had, had the, believed this myth that the best way to mix your fentanyl now was with a magic bullet blender. And of course, then you begin to see these horrid mixes, really bad, you, you just wildly off and very, very deadly and lots of clusters of overdoses. What this also means, though, is that the, the danger to someone in the ER or a, or a police officer or a paramedic or what have you is remarkable i mean there's there's i don't believe i've been told by knowledgeable chemists that touching fentanyl is not a threat i still wouldn't want to do it honestly but i do believe that breathing the fumes or breathing the dust because now they find it in powder form right and and all, or also you know those two cadets who overdosed tr giving cpr to the to the friends who were already out, they overdosed as well. Now, how they got in touch with it, maybe it was putting their mouths over, someone had dust on their lips or nose or something. I don't know, I don't think anyone knows, but it shows you just how easy it is to to see that, to get that stuff uh, yeah. uh, and, and be affected by it. And of course, it's extraordinarily potent, which is a very, very, the, the, the uh, you know, every ER needs, uh, most likely does now, but needs to have Narcan around in, in great quantity. Yeah, you make a great point there. And, and you had talked earlier about your initial book, Dreamland, um, and that you wanted to add more and you just really didn't have the, the capacity to do it on that book. So then you followed up with The Least of Us. Yes. Um, in the future, as you looked at, at just in that short amount of time between books, you saw changes that you've mentioned before. In the future, do you continue to see, even now, you just published this book, I believe, in November of last year, so it's very recent, but yes. do you already see that there's a continued change or continued growth, or what impact, I, I guess, should emergency nurses consider in the future? Of oh, yeah, oh, without a doubt, yes, no doubt. Um, I would say that what has happened nationwide now, which was happening only regionally, is the effect of methamphetamine on ERs. Um, Again, some some ERs have been seeing this for quite some time. I'm just saying that the 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 story that I tell in in, in the least of us is about the change in the way they made methamphetamine down in Mexico, and that change happened in 2008, 2000, and because of a change in, in Mexico regulating the chemical uh, ephedrine, which they used to use to make methamphetamine, they switched to another method. This method uses lots of chem of industrial chemicals. Not exactly sure what is the reason for what happened later, but basically they're able to make, um, because it uses chemicals, uh, industrial, widely available, legal chemicals, they can make it in stunning, stunning quantities the way they never could with ephedrine. It begins to spread the, the, uh, all across the country, beginning in the 
like in the West Coast in 2013, 14, Midwest, 2017, 18, up into New England, 2019, effectively, you know, covering, again, covering the country. And along with that, though, I found in my reporting is that it's accompanied by uh, very severe, rapid onset symptoms of schizophrenia, meth psychosis, meth-induced psychosis that is very, very pronounced, very rapid, very intense, a horrible, horrible paranoia, delusions, hallucinations. Everybody's got, you know, there's a, 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 a bug in my brain spying on me. There's that black car had an FBI agent. Everyone's out to kill me. Um, and a whole lot of stuff like that. And, and then, of course, violence and up all night and raving and raging. And this, this leads to then very quickly to homelessness. And so you have mental illness and homelessness accompanying this stuff across the country for ER uh, personnel of all kinds. Uh, methamphetamine has changed, I think, in many parts of the country, changed the work experience. It's, it's um, first of all, uh, folks come in out of their minds. And so now, it, it, you know, any place you put that person, that person has to be protected from himself and any, any impulse to harm others. So, uh, you know, you have to almost fortify every ER room where you're going to put these folks because uh, the wires, the TV, you know, all all kinds of things can be used to hurt other other people. You have um, uh, people coming in thrashing. I spoke with an ER doc in southern Indiana uh, who said he's now seeing many, many cases of something I'd never heard of, uh, uh, an affliction called rhabdomyolysis, which I take to be massive overuse of muscles excreting a protein that's bad for the kidney he has a whole ward he says of people with rhabdomyolysis. now this is a very rare thing but all of a sudden he's got lots of those folks and he's got to sedate them because otherwise they'll they'll just thrash almost themselves uh to death you're also finding um that that this drug uh, particularly methamphetamine seems to keep people from seeking treatment or warmth or you know keep people in tent encampments where they can find the dope or they have all their so-called friends and the so-called you know meth-based community basically is what those are now i think by and large and so finding ways of helping people helping people help themselves is very very difficult and 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 determining i think a big one is determining who is actually organically mentally ill and who is psychotic based on the use of methamphetamine is a very tough call because I was just in a uh, speaking with some um, uh, homeless uh, staff workers at a, at a, at a, at a shelter um, yesterday and they say it's almost impossible to tell the difference um, so you never really know in fact sometimes antipsychotic medicine will will help that person kind of come down that doesn't mean that that person's addiction is treated. It's just mean just means the psychosis and the frantic um, paranoia and scary um, delusions and the, that kind of thing just are, are a little bit more more manageable. The voices remain, I think, but they don't and they don't disappear. They just don't take prominence. So all of these are reasons or how these drugs have changed life and work for people in 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 ERs. And I bet once you have people listening to this, um, I would very, very eagerly want to hear from you. Uh, anybody who's out there who has similar experiences, I've heard from ER docs and ER nurses, 
um, in several parts of the country. Um, I would just let me just say you can find me very easily on the web, but my email is Sam Quinones seven S A M Q U I N O N E S seven at yahoo.com the number seven at yahoo.com sam quinona seven at yahoo.com um i have found that since the book came out um just a lot of people been in, e emailing me saying that's exactly what i've been dealing with that's yeah. for, that describes my life over the last six years in san francisco or phoenix or new mexico or wherever and so i i'm very very eager to hear uh, the experiences of people in ERs, because that is really one of the front lines in both of these drugs. Um, it's, it's because they're so damaging, it's not so much the treatment center, right? It's not so much the drug rehabilitation clinic anymore. People don't live long enough to meet, get to the re drug rehabilitation clinic. They die from fentanyl or they don't, they reject treatment because they're out of their mind on meth. So it's really the ER which is uh, very often um, the, the front line and all this, that and homeless outreach uh, workers are also a big part of that front line. But I'd be very interested to hear, but I, I think, I think uh, uh, you would hear like just remarkable stories of this, of this all across the country. Well, for those that are listening right now, uh, you know exactly why I reached out to Sam when I picked up that article at the uh, airport and was reading that because as you were just speaking, uh, everything every point you made the homelessness the mental health issues and, and those things every point i mean you're hitting the nail on the head this is exactly what we're seeing arise in uh, I'm, I'm based in north louisiana same thing here so everywhere across the country we're seeing um all of this it's just a, a remarkable uh, rise in all of these things and it's remarkable that so much of it not every part but so much of it is tied to the rise in drug use across the United States. Well, I think, I think so. And that's the thing. I mean, the methamphetamine is now nationwide. It never was. Yeah. 10 years ago, you would find, you know, the Western United States had it from Mexico. And then in other parts of the country, people would be making it in their Mountain Dew bottles or in their motel rooms or in their barns or whatever. But you're talking about very small quantities. You're talking about a few ounces at the most. Here with Mexico, you're talking about enormous quantities, kilos and kilos and kilos of the stuff. So much so, here's the thing, uh, Michael. I, it, it seems to, it's an amazing thing to me that they cover the country and drop the price. You know, I'm in Nashville right now. You should you should ask the cops in your area. What did what did meth go for five five six years ago in in your part of Indiana? In Nashville, meth was nineteen thousand dollars a pound five years ago, according to the the uh, the folks, uh, narcotics folks that I've talked to in the state narcotics uh, agency. Uh, now it's three thousand. That's an eighty percent drop. Not only have they covered the country in meth, but they've also dropped the price by eighty percent. What that means is that's also extraordinarily important because that means it's so prevalent that. Even if it's not the proximate cause of your homelessness, even though there's some other reason why you are homeless, very quickly you will start using meth because it's so common. It keeps you warm because your body's metabolism is, is revved up. It keeps you uh, delusional. And so you don't really know where you are. So you're kind of divorced from the grim reality. And, and once you start using it, it's a very difficult to get out of homelessness once you start using meth. It's unclear. I would say the jury is quite a bit out on this, but it seems to me that it also creates at least, you know, long lasting brain damage, if not permanent brain damage. You know, you don't return. What happens is frequently people will tell you, 
that people do not return to normal. The base baseline is the way people would express it to me. Right. Do not return to baseline after they stop using it, or it takes months. I spoke to a woman with a woman in the book you may have read where where she you know she was barking like a dog on this stuff. It was a it was a scary scary thing she was describing. She two years in, I was talking to her two years into her sobriety, and she still knew that her brain was not the same. Yeah, it was a very powerful, poignant interview. I remember. Um, but see, that's the other part of it. It's it's, it's we're not clear. The longer you're on the street using, um, the more you're resisting t uh, a treatment, the more you're in your tent encampment, uh, the more damage you're doing uh, to yourself. Yeah, very interesting points. Thank you for sharing those, uh, Sam. And I, I just I could talk to you all day about these things. I mean, it's just fascinating yeah. to me. I'm going to turn it over to Mark, and I know he has some questions for you, and and then I'll come back in in a minute. Thanks, Michael. So, Sam, ask you some other things. For instance, tell us about a person or a moment in your career that greatly has impacted you. And I'm sure you have lots of them, but is oh, any that come right to mind? Oh my goodness. Um... I remember the moment when I realized that I had stumbled on one the greatest job in California journalism, which was covering crime in Stockton. Um, I think it was covering a homicide. And I'd always been as a kid, like I'd read mop books about the mafia and, you know, and I remember, um, you know, just the homicide rate in Stockton was getting pretty high with the crack epidemic. And it, I took this job because I would came from the Orange County Register, which at the time was like the, the darling of the media industry. It had this brand new color press and it huge amounts of money in Orange County. And oh, my God. And I was bored. I didn't have the right, you know. And, and so I got this job in Stockton and I went up there. My dad said, you know, my dad was a literature professor. My mother was a uh, elementary school teacher. He said, you know, Sam, you might want to consider this. I don't know. We're not the most streetwise of families, you know, and he was right, you know. He was absolutely right. But when I got up there, um, I began to realize I had stumbled into this magnificent job with a great editor. And what's more that if I stayed with it, I would learn to be a really strong writer because I wrote for the next four years, I wrote four or five stories a day. You do that over four years, all on deadline, all with the stress of finding the facts and getting them right and that kind of thing. And you will be You'll be a very, that's my graduate school, basically, was working, covering crime for the Stockton record. So really, that was like this moment when I, my, my trajectory of my career, I never thought of being a crime reporter up until then. And after that, I never wanted to be anything else. I was fully addicted. And in fact, one, one assistant chief said, if you, if, if you, you are so much like some of the cops we have on our street, I mean, we, they, they just live this stuff. They live it day and night. And I did, I did too. In fact, I still pretty much do. Nothing really gets me as excited as a, as a story about crime because you can write about so much, you know. But anyway, the, the, the first time when I realized that I had stumbled into this great job, I think it was covering a homicide in, in Stockton and then discussing it with the lieutenant. And I remember also one time um, I was on a ride along uh, late into the night with this cop and, and he finally takes me back to the station and I go in to say goodnight to the lieutenant and all of a sudden over the radio comes uh, man, you know, man comes home, calls, man comes home, finds his wife, uh, 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 you know, brutally, brutally murdered. Um, he's hysterical, um, you know, and so, so the lieutenant goes, hey man, 
you want to go? And I go, hell yeah, let's go. And so we, it's like three in the morning, jump into his car where the lights are flashing. We're driving all the way up. Jim Horton was the name. Great, great, great lieutenant, this guy. Really like that guy. Um, he, uh, he says, so you've got this husband coming home. He's hysterical. The wife is dead. Who, 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 who do you think killed the, the, the woman? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. How should I know? He looks at me, you idiot. It's the husband, you know? And sure enough, you know, I get there and the, 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 the husband is screaming and crying in the backseat of the car, banging his head against the window. And I'm thought, there's no way this guy did this. And the next morning he had confessed and he didn't 17 years in prison. Those kinds of things, you know, it's school board meetings and city council meetings. After that, they don't hold a candle to what you can cover when you're covering this stuff. So thanks. Appreciate that. Sure. What would you be doing if you weren't in your current role? Did you think of other things in life to do before no, you went into this? No, I would be, um, I would, I, I, there was a time in which I wanted to play guitar for the Rolling Stones, but that job wasn't open and the Ramones too, I wanted to play for them. They weren't, that wasn't happening. You know, it's, it, I can't, I'm not, I, I'm not kidding. It's just sounds like a cliche. But um, I've been high on this job for 35 years, and I don't, I, I could not imagine possibly doing anything else. Literally, I don't, I mean, anything else I think, yeah, I do that. No, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't know. That would be boring as hell, you know, that kind of thing. So even, you know, so, so it's, a, it's an amazing thing, but I, I'm lucky because I've, I've found this work, and I wake up every day overjoyed with it, thrilled with it, and I'm not bored. I'm not and anytime you find that, that, that was my, my mom told me when I was in ninth grade, always, you have to find a job that you love because otherwise it'll poison the rest of your life. And, and, um, if you hate the job that you love, hate the job you work at, it'll, you know, and so I, I was, took that very, very much to heart. And, and I, I do something I, I really love. So I hate to sidestep your question, but I really cannot think of anything else unless the, the Rolling Stones finally want to give me a job, you know. Well, that's what I was going to say. If you woke up tomorrow morning, the phone was ringing, and you answered it, and Mick Jagger said, hey, we need you on our team. Would you go with the Rolling Stones? Well, that would be tough because that would mean Keith Richards would finally have died, man. And I don't know. I'm, I'm really enjoying Keith Richards in his old age. He was uh, he was uh, my, my kind of like young punk hero when I was in ninth and 10th and 11th grade. I had a big poster of him on my wall, that kind of thing. I've always, I always thought the brains of the operation was Keith Richards. So they'll be around for another hundred years. So <laughs> you can only hope. Yeah. All right, I'm going to ask you some favorite questions. For instance, this one, what is your current favorite book other than your books? Of course. Wow. I am reading a couple of things that I find very interesting right now. I've always got three or four books going at the same time. I think journalists have to read very, very widely always. Um, I'm reading a book called The Reformation. It's a history of the Reformation of the Catholic Church. And, and I'm in the middle of writing, of reading about Martin Luther, who was a complicated guy. I don't think I always liked what he was about. Um, but you know, it was a, it was a transformation of the Christian church that was absolutely necessary. Um, I think it probably could use another reformation, uh, right now. Um, uh, uh, I, I, I also read it because, <laughs> um, one of the groups to come, uh, this is in my second book you haven't read, but if you want to, uh, there's a book called Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream in which I talk, the last chapter is about my run-in with uh, drug uh, cartel-connected 
um, old world Mennonites in northern uh, Mexico. Uh, there's colonies of these folks that come from, they came from Mexico. I mean, I'm sorry, they came from Canada to Mexico in the 1920s. Of course, initially they came from Germany, Austria, and they run out of Russia. Um, Mennonites, by and large, have integrated, unlike the Amish, into general society and, and as such are, are enormous benefits and boons to those societies. I've always felt Mennonites have, have a very community-based um, uh, feel to their world and to the world and to their approach to life. Praiseworthy with, without a doubt. However, there are some groups that have remained very, very isolated and very old world, only recently giving up the, the horse and buggy. The women still wearing bonnets, the guys with straw hats, in, in, in northern Mexico, south of Ciudad Juarez, about four hours, there's a, the largest colony, old, Menon, old world Mennonite colony in Mexico. And there, those folks, a significant, in my book, I wrote 10%, I'm thinking it's far more than that now, a significant percentage of those folks are wrapped up with the drug trafficking world. Um, and I went down to do the, and, and of course, the Mennonite denomination grew from the Reformation, grew from a guy named Menon who really didn't have much to do with it. They just kind of took that name. And uh, what's interesting about the Mennonite church, old world church, as it's practiced in, Juara, in, in, in the state of Chihuahua, south of Juarez, is that it's very much looks like the Catholic church of, of the 1400s. You know, the, the, the masses are in German, which they don't speak. They speak a low German that's very different from German. And then when we read the Bible, they really don't have much interest in the Bible or spirituality. It's all about following rules and regulations. And this is what part of the problem that got them into drug trafficking. And while there'd be these regulations and people would flout them, more regulations. Now you can't use a, a tires on your plows, all that kind of stuff. People would flout. So it became, there was this flouting of regulations and rules in the church and drug trafficking just became another way of flouting that, you know? And so what you have down there was a real significantly entrenched uh, drug culture, drug, uh, drug um, trafficking culture among the Mennonites, German speaking, very quaint looking, peasant looking folks. But man, they get checked out when they go to the cross into El Paso by the by the border patrol, the border security, they German shepherds, because they well know that these folks are definitely involved in that. Now, I had a very, very, very scary run in with those folks. I went down to that area, wrote about uh, was going to be writing about them eventually did uh, was followed. I don't know if you've ever been actually followed by someone who wants to do you harm, like in some cop movie or something like that. I don't think I'd ever been until the Mennonites started doing it down in northern northern Mexico. It was a scary, scary thing. Only dovetailed into that story because I've been reading this book about the Reformation and how they they began to want to want to change very very important make very important changes the Catholic Church. A lot of those changes I see still see now, and I mean, a lot of those reasons for changes are, have been incorporated into the into the Protestant churches now denominations, and they need, I think, a little bit of a, a reformation themselves. So that to me is one book that I've been very happy. I bought like ten, I bought it ten years ago, and that's how I read. I buy books. I'm going to read that someday, and then then I finally get to it. Current movie or favorite movie that you've had of all time. Oh my goodness! There, I mean, current movies. I have not seen many good ones uh, lately. Um, I think it's possible that it's because I'm only watching them on screen, small screens. I think great movies come come alive on the big screen, and we have not really been to a, a movie theater in a couple of years now. 
Um, I've watched The Godfather maybe 25 times. You know, I've watched Goodfellas, same uh, Chinatown, uh, Dog Day Afternoon, French Connection. The 70s were the greatest time for movies, in my opinion. Um, there were just such uh, great stories and such willingness to take chances that you don't see anymore. I, I'm just not. I am sorry. I am not a superhero guy. I cannot bear superhero movies. People talk like great intellectual discussions about Batman and Spider-Man. I'm like, it's not worth talking about. It's it's for kids. It's candy. It's like, you know, it's comparing candy to great food, you know, that kind of thing. I don't. So that means I don't see a lot of stuff these days. But, you know, the classics, I I, I watch Heat. I've watched Heat. Oh my God, with Martin, uh, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. I think I've watched that 13, 14 times, twice in Spanish, so. Thank you. And how about a song? What's a current, or a song that you like, a favorite song? Oh gosh, well I'm in Nashville. The greatest country singer, uh, well, I'm a huge country music fan, although I'm not so, again, not so fond of the stuff I see on, on TV. I think it's kind of dopey, honestly. Don't don't really find much to, to like about it, but. Uh, Emmy Lou Harris is the greatest country, one of the greatest country singers of all time, uh, right up there with Waylon Jennings, right up there, George, George Jones. God, that guy just killed me, man. He was such a great singer. Merle Haggard, all these guys. Um, and her version of Poncho and Lefty by Towns Van Zandt um, is just stunning and always has been, always will be. It's just a playing on the guitar and so she is she is like like the gold standard of beautiful music great taste in music great taste in song selection i mean she is like a an american jewel uh that woman and so poncho and lefty by by emmy lou harris although as i said earlier you know i was very very into all kinds of music punk rock i wrote my my senior thesis at uc berkeley about uh, bebop jazz in the 1940s all kinds american music has always been so so rich it's i don't know if any other country has achieved the kind of popular musics that we have that have been so beautiful and so stunning jazz rock and roll country is magnificent blues you just go on a zydeco down in in, in louisiana man i love that so one of the greatest shows i ever saw was a Clifton Chenier, the kind of guy who invented Zydeco, died many years ago. Oh my God, that was one of the great shows of my lifetime. I'll never forget that thing. And I just love American music. I just think it's so beautiful and and so rich and different. And now I'm in Nashville listening to this great radio station, WMOT. Oh my God, I'm hearing all kinds of new people I hadn't heard before. Um, so it's it's a you know i'll choose one song but there are millions let's talk about food how about a comfort food or a meal that you really enjoy what's that comfort food do you go to you know i had a heart attack five years ago which for which they gave me fentanyl and after that i really stopped eating a lot of crappy food that i used to you know when i'm on the road you get in late to a hotel they have cookies out i would eat the cookies or snickers or m and i don't eat that crap anymore i just you know i never really ate a lot of burgers and stuff you know, I have found like this weird fascination for um, dates with 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 uh, pecans. It it that takes the place of Snickers bars. They it tastes so much like a candy bar. That oh my god, it's so good. And lately, I have I've never been much of an alcohol drinker at all. But lately, I've been um, sipping uh, bourbon, 
And so that is also kind of a, and you know, let's, by the way, bourbon, Mark, has extraordinary nutrition. It's almost like a <laughs> a whole, it's like, a, it's like health food. It's a health, think of it as a health food. No, it's, it's something I, I, I drink very, very, very in small doses, small amounts, and just as a kind of a way of, you know, doing something a little bit different. I've never done that before. I, I don't come home and have a beer ever in my life. You know, I just not a big drinker, but just kind of later in life, maybe I'm seeing that as a way of relaxing. And uh, how about hobbies or interests? What do you do when you're not working? <laughs> oh, um, playing music. I'm I'm learning the accordion. Oh, um, I just picked up the accordion a year ago. In fact, it was like literally a year ago, like two weeks ago, a year ago or something like that. And um, I've always wanted to play the accordion. It's bizarre, but it also, you know, I'm 63 and I think I'm thinking of it as kind of my anti-Alzheimer's medicine or something. It's a beautiful instrument. I just bought a new one. It's coming in the mail in about two or three days, Uh, a used one, but a new one to me. And, and so I'm really, uh, I just love it. I just love trying to figure out how to play it. And when you finally do get that, it's like three instruments. I've had it explained to me. One is, yeah, the piano keys. That's a piano. It's like the guitar on the bass. The bass has forms that, you know, you can shapes that like, just like on the guitar. And then of course the bellows back and forth, like the cello. So it's got three instruments going at once. And if you can balance all those in your brain and it's, it does, it's a difficult, but it, not impossible. You can do it. Um, I, if I've been able to do it, certainly anybody can do it. I've been doing a lot of photography. I do a lot of photography. I love photography, but I also have to say, I mean, the, the truth is this, that um, I don't ever, I'm never going to retire from doing what I do. I, I want to write for the rest of my life, as long as I'm physically capable of that. And so my hobby is in most towns when 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 friends would come see me in Stockton, I would take them out to read the gang graffiti. Literally true, you know. So that's kind of my hobby, that kind of thing. Trying to understand crime, understand investigations, understand what cops do. It's fascinating work they do. Um, that's kind of where I am. Great, thank you. And uh, for our audience, you gave me your email address. Is there any other social media or is there any other websites or anything that they should oh, contact? Oh, man, every writer has to be on the damn social media all over it. I can't, I, I mean, if you want to be a writer, you have to promote yourself. I've been learning this very earnestly for a long time now. Uh, you can't avoid it. And so, yeah, Twitter at Sam Quinona 7 uh, Facebook at Sam Quinonez Journalist, all one word. And Instagram at Sam Canyonas underscore author. But you can find me like all over the so yeah, Instagram, Sam Canyonas underscore author. Um, I'd rather not be so much on inst on social media, but again, in order to if you want to be a writer and you survive in the in the marketplace, you have to promote yourself. So that's what I do. Well, good. Well, thank you. Uh, Michael, before we conclude, is there anything else that you wanted to ask? No. Like I said, we could talk all day, and I appreciate the time you've taken, and I, and I truly means a lot to us and to the emergency nurses that will hear this. I definitely want to send it out to a lot of them. And uh, one thing that we haven't mentioned, we've talked about your book quite a bit, but uh, do you have any specific areas that you send people to to purchase your book, or where would you tell people to go? Oh, my goodness, yeah. Well, it's on there. My books are available everywhere amazon although you know here's the thing go to go to um oh what's it called hold on one second i'll find it bookshop.org bookshop.org is where you can find 
all the independent bookstores in America selling their books and my books up there. You can go to my, my website, which is Sam Kenyona seven and the pages have uh, the interior pages have uh, places where you can buy the book, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble and independent bookstores. You can find them all over and it's in, it's, they're in, you know, Kindle, Audible, their audiobooks, uh, you name it, the, the last two anyway, Least of Us in Dreamland. Um, all of that is, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much available wherever you like. Feel free to leave a review, feel free to like it if you like it, that kind of thing. And there's, there's there, but my website is uh, samkinonis.com. For those that are listening to this, again, as he mentioned earlier, you are welcome to reach out to him via email if you have any stories or any uh, particular examples of ways that this uh, epidemic has impacted you. And um, again, Sam, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your insight. I think as an emergency nurse, we see a lot of these patients that we, we call frequent flyers, a lot of return trips to the ED. And this book really, and, and the books that you've written, really open that up in a different light to help you understand that it's so complex and there's so much more to it than just simply somebody returning to the ER, but it's a lifetime yeah. and, and it's a system and a culture that's been created that, that is now yeah. impacting frontline workers, as you said. Well, so thank you I've, for that insight. Thank you for, again, for sharing this with us and I will turn it back to Mark and, and we hope that you have a wonderful day and continue to do great things and, and shine a light on this epidemic. Well, thanks very much, uh, Michael and Michael. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I do want to say a shout out to all the, the folks who work in ERs uh, who are listening. It's, it's an extraordinarily important work and, and you're up against quite a lot. And so, and if you do have questions or stories you want to tell me about what you're seeing and methamphetamine and fentanyl and all that, you, my email is again at samkinonis7 at yahoo.com. I want to take this time to thank Sam Kionis for joining us for this episode of BCN and Friends. Thank you, Sam, for sharing your time and stories with us. It's been a real pleasure. And to all our listeners, we hope you will stay tuned as we continue on with BCN and Friends and bring in new and meaningful content and perspectives. If you have a suggestion for an episode, please email us at bcn at bcn.org. I'm Mark Eggers here with Michael Dexter. And on behalf of the entire BCN team, we thank and celebrate you for all that you are doing as professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. Until next time, 